let us start with the peace chant om bhadram karne bhi shrinuyam deva bhadram pashe maksha bhirya jatra sthirai rangai tushtvagum sastano bhihi vyashema devahi tayadayah स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवाह स्वस्ति न पूषा विश्ववेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्षो अरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दधा ओं शांति 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 वी स्टार्टेड द सेकेंड चैप्टर of mandukya karika let us do the first verse we have done the first verse last time so let's just chant it vaitathyam sarvabhavanam vaitathyam sarvabhavanam swapna ahur manishinah swapna ahur manishinah antasthanatu bhavanam मांडुक्य उपनिषद मंत्र यूज द वर्ड प्रपंच उपशम देशन ऑफ द यूनिवर्स एंड विच बेसिकली मीन्स falsity of the universe jagat mithyatvam that the universe is an appearance it's not real intrinsically real now what was said by the upanishad ma gaurapada the author of the mandukya karika wants to prove it by reasoning by logic so that is why he has started the second chapter it's literally called vaitatya prakarana means the chapter on falsity not that the chapter is false it's a chapter discussing the falsity of the universe and trying to present a case to convince us that the universe is an appearance an appearance of what an appearance of what yes an appearance of yourself of you you the pure consciousness you alone are appearing as this universe or in terms of the mandukya upanishad one consciousness appearing as the waker and the waker's world as the dreamer and the dream world as the deep sleeper and the 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 potential uh, world of the deep sleep so that is what is meant by universe in mandukya upanishad not only this physical universe but also the mental universe and also the causal universe the universe in its seed form all of them are appearances in one consciousness so um that they are appearances that they are not really the universe and its objects here are not independent realities as they seem to be you know separate from us and that it is not so they want to prove it through logic through based on experience and reasoning not just on the force of quotations from the upanishads so how what is the what is the approach taken by gaurapada he is going to use dreams as an example because we take dreams to be false we upon waking up we say oh, it was a dream and we don't take the events the people and the things which happened in the dream we do not take them to be real um he's going to use that as a paradigm 
to show that the things we experience in the world are also like that. They are not exactly a dream, they are like a dream. Like in what sense are they like that? They are like in the sense that they are also false. Just as the things in the dream are also as appearances, we don't take them seriously when we wake up. Similarly, what you experience in the waking world is also, the, all these are appearances of some underlying reality. That is what he wants to prove. That he's going to take the dream as an example. Before he does that, before he starts to show us this world is an appearance like a dream, before he does that, he wants to make absolutely sure that we are on the same page. He says the dreams are false or the things that we experience in the dreams are not real. Do we all agree? To make that clear, he first devotes the first three verses, 2.1, 2.2 and 2.3, to show that the dreams are actually false. Dreams, the, what we see in the dreams cannot be real. Uh, he's going to use logic, uh, experience, reasoning, he's going to use that to show that they are uh, appearances. We may say that it's time wasted, we, we accept them. But um, why? We have not really phys uh, philosophically thought it out. When you, um, when you wake up from a dream, say suppose in a dream a dog was chasing you and you are running away in anxiety and you suddenly wake up sitting on your bed. You just say, oh, it was a nightmare. You don't get up, jump out of your bed and slam the door shut to shut the dog out. No, because you know there is no such thing. You don't take it seriously anymore. But now Gaudapada asks, why not? What is the reasoning behind considering dreams to be false? We take dreams to be false. We, after all, we say it was only a dream. But why do you take the things and the, the events in a dream to be not real events, the people in the dream to be not real people, the things that you see in the dream, the places that you see, it did not really happen, you did not really go there, why not? So let's think about it, use reasoning. And Gaurapada brings up reasons. The first reason which we have seen in this, this um, first verse is Antasthana samritatvena hetuna. What does it mean? Because they are inside, so, when you wake up, you realize you did not actually go to Central Park. You were dreaming about it. Now, you dreamt about the lake and the trees and so many things, the vehicles. When you wake up, you realize it was all in my mind here, somewhere here. That means the whole thing which you saw was in here, not out there. You did not actually go and see the park there. You saw the lake and the trees and all in here. But in here... You cannot have a lake and a tree and all, all, all in there. It's impossible. Because it was seen inside, not the actual things outside. Hence, they are not real. They were projections of the mind, dreamt up by the mind. But let us be even more careful. Gaurapada says, just because a thing is inside, being inside is not sufficient reason for it being false. The heart is inside the body. It doesn't mean that there is no real heart in the body. My lungs and my kidney and all are ins all of the organs are inside the body, thankfully. But that doesn't mean they are false. They are actually there inside. Being inside is not a cause of falsity. You see, the, uh, it might seem a stupid way of arguing, but it always pays to be very careful. Um, in, in philosophy, it's good to move slowly, not too fast. It's not that uh, philosophers are awfully clever and extraordinarily intelligent more than us. 
They might be, but usually the philosophical method is a painstaking method, is a careful thinking, step by step, not missing out anything. Just because you say things are inside, will they, are they false? For example, here we are, we are inside the Vedanta society. So are we false? Are we dreams? No, we are inside the Vedanta society. He said, no, that in, inside is not the real reason. The real reason is inside you do not have appropriate, sufficient space for the central park, for a car or a tree or, uh, you know, things like that to be inside the brain, inside the physical body. If you think that all the dreams are happening in there somewhere, and they are because of the nervous system, even the Upanishads agree. In another Upanishad, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, it says, what happens in a dream? The sentient being, Jiva, you, the individual being, you exist in the, nerv in the nerves, in the, in the fine nerves of the body, which is pretty, uh, uh, you know, pretty close to what we might think today. The, the, the jiva the, is the sentient being exists by itself in a, inside the nerves. Well, in, inside the nerves, inside our neurons, there is no space for trees and people and cars. So, for that reason, the things you saw in the dream, they are inside and insufficient space. Hence, they are not to be taken as real. Okay. Now, let us go ahead. What is going on? He is trying to establish once for all the dreams. We agree that they are false. But he is making sure that we know, give us some reasons why they are false. He is going to show us by reasoning, by experience and also with a quotation from the Upanishad. Why? Because this is the way they, uh, they, they approach it in Vedanta. They call it Shruti Yukti Anubhuti. Shruti means, uh, they, they, it does, um, Upanishad actually say that. Why is it important for the Upanishad to say it? Because this is Vedanta. Vedanta is based on the Upanishad. It's not some freewheeling theory, speculation that Gaudapada has come up with himself. So he's bound to show that whatever he's doing, is it actually, is he still talking Vedanta or not? Or is it um, new philosophy, Gaudapadian philosophy or something like that? But no, the Vedanta says it, that it, the dreams are false. Then uh, uh, he has to give reasons. Why do you think dreams are false? And also experience. So he's going to show us some more reasons and experience and Upanishad to show that dreams are false. Number two. Adhir-ghatva-chaka-lasya-adhir-ghatva-chaka-lasya-gatva-deshan-na-pashyati-gatva-deshan-na-pashyati-prati-buddhas-ca-vai-sarvaha-prati-buddhas-ca-vai-s
so just imagine the time it takes, just the time it takes to go from here to JFK, especially if there is heavy traffic. And then all the things that you have to do to board the plane and then the long journey in the plane and then you go to Mumbai and then you come back, stay a few, a few days, all of that. And when you wake up, it's just been a few hours since you went to sleep. How could you have actually accomplished that in this time? It's not appropriate. The time is not sufficient. So he says, Time is not sufficient. For what? He did not actually, it's not sufficient for you to go to that place, to Mumbai and see it. It's not sufficient. Especially if we consider that um, you actually do not have one continuous dream throughout the night. You have multiple dreams. There are phases. I had gone to the doctor's place and they, were, they had a screen there showing. So very interesting for me. They, they were showing on the screen and first they said, Look at the screen, this screen, not yours. <laughs> it said on the screen. <laughs> so don't look. And then it says, uh, phases of sleep. Uh, national Council of Sleep. I didn't even know that there was National Council of Sleep. So National Council of Sleep, phases of sleep. And it says at first you drift off into a stage between waking and sleeping. And then into a light non-REM sleep. Um, that is first you drift off, then you get, they give physiological indicators. Your blood pressure falls, um, surface body temperature drops and things like that. And um, it is non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, which means you're not dreaming at that time. And then it says it goes to a second stage of uh, deep non-REM sleep. That means deep sleep, sushupti. And it says, then it goes into a phase of REM sleep. That means dreams. Come, come, sit, sit. It goes into a phase of dream sleep, where your eyes are moving. Under your eyelids, the eyeballs are moving rapidly. Rapid eye movement, and that is supposed to be correlated to dream. That means the subject is actually dreaming there. Now, why did I say that? Oh, each of these dreams lasts for a few minutes. Uh, each of these dreams lasts for a few minutes. And yet, your experience was that you traveled to Mumbai and came back, which should have taken several days. It's not sufficient time. It is not sufficient time. Supposing you um, go to Mumbai and come back in a dream and then suddenly you wake up in your bed and you look. It's two weeks. You, you went to sleep two weeks ago and now it's two weeks later. <laughs> like Rip Van Winkle, you have slept through two weeks. You might actually suspect that you had actually gone to Mumbai and come back because the time is sufficient. Maybe you just forgot. You have got amnesia or something. Uh, you don't remember how you went to sleep. Must be jet lagged. So it's quite possible. You might actually have that experience. If the time was sufficient, you would have cause for doubting. But if you just found a couple of hours have passed, three hours have passed, then you know that uh, you just you, you slept. And according to the National Council of Sleep, you didn't sleep enough. <laughs> three hours, four hours, you say you're chronically sleep deprived. Americans say. Um, so... It is not sufficient to go to a place. Physically, you have not gone to any place and seen it. Now, notice that he has given two reasons for the falsity of dreams. Uh, one is that space is not sufficient. And the second one is time is not sufficient. Sufficient means not appropriate. Okay. And sometimes much more time may pass. Months may pass. Years may pass. 
you might have a dream spanning years of life and you wake up after a night's sleep so now in the next part of the verse he gives an um, a reason uh, he gives experience he has given reason now in reason in sanskrit is called yukti so reason to show that dreams are false remember careful here when you say dreams are false what do you mean the things you saw in the dream are false the people you saw actually you did not see them the places you visited actually you did not visit those places that's what it means that means the contents of the dream are appearances he does not want to say that you did not see a dream say i i woke up and say i saw a dream that's true you did see a dream but it was a dream you did not actually those things did not happen now he's going to give you from experience your own experience shows that dreams are false how pratibuddhaschavai sarva tasmin deshe na vidyate now suppose you dream that you have gone to mumbai and instead of dreaming that you have come back somebody wakes you up suddenly hey get up or the alarm rings it's time to get up and go to office where here in manhattan you didn't wake up in mumbai right if you did wake up in mumbai you would not think it's a dream you would think okay maybe i'm jet lagged i've come from jfk landed in mumbai then gone gone off to sleep and i woke up and it's correct it's mumbai so i must have come here it's true but if you wake up in uh, manhattan and you were dreaming that you were in mumbai uh, or or you you just saw that you were in mumbai and you suddenly wake up in manhattan then you say oh it was a dream it was a dream right why because you were seeing mumbai but you wake up in manhattan that's not possible you have no recollection of flying back to manhattan so it must have been a dream he says that when you wake up suddenly go to you dream that you see that you have gone to a place and you wake up suddenly you don't wake up in that place you wake up somewhere else then you realize that i did not actually go to that place your experience itself shows if i if you fly from here to mumbai and you fall asleep and you wake up and you see it's mumbai you don't think it's a dream you don't think it's a dream but you are seeing mumbai and you suddenly set, set up in your bed and see it's manhattan you th- you will think oh that was a dream why do you think that was a dream because if you are seeing mumbai and you wake up you should have woken up in mumbai you shouldn't you wouldn't shouldn't have woken up in manhattan so that's literally what it's you might say this is childish but he's ab- making absolutely sure that we are 100% on the same page the people we see in the dream we did not actually see them in the dream the places we visited we did not actually visit them in the dream um, or the things which we saw uh, events which happened all of them they are all appearances dreamt up by the mind supratibuddhaschavai sarva tasmin deshena vidyate once you wake up you suddenly see you are not in that place which you are dreaming about you are sitting on your bed now so what has he given so far yukti reasons what reasons sufficient space is not there sufficient time is not there anubhuti experience what experience he gives an experience you go somewhere in a dream and you wake up not there you are elsewhere but same thing you can extend you are talking to someone and you wake up that person is not there anymore suddenly that person has disappeared so it must be a dream 
you're swimming, you've gone to the beach and you're swimming in the, in the sea, in the ocean and you suddenly wake up, you're sitting in your bed, neither there is any sand on anywhere on the bed nor are your legs uh, wet. So that means it was a dream. Neither the water is there nor the sand is there. Therefore, so the things, the sand and the water you saw, they were in the dream. So your experience contradicts what you had seen. Hence, it's a dream. Alright. Now, verse number 3. Yes. Yes. Then I get the blueprint on paper and then after many, many months the bridge in the physical form actually manifests. Yeah. Situation one. Now let's say I dreamt that blueprint in mm. my dream. Yes. Entirely possible. Yes. Now how are you going to distinguish these two situations? Because the bridge hasn't manifested in either case. Right. But in the dream, you don't um, see, see that, uh, in a dream you see that the bridge has manifested. When you wake up, you say, that, oh, there's no bridge. So it must have been a dream. It, it was just a blueprint in, in, in a thought, yeah. In, so in you, dream two, let's say I did not see the bridge, but I did cook up a blueprint. <laughs> All right, there's no problem. You cooked up a blueprint in the dream, you dreamt of a blueprint. Right. right. And um, you, you can uh, say in the morning that, yeah, I dreamt of a blueprint. There's no, no harm there. You see, what is meant by false? False means it's something that is actually in the mind but projected outside. If it's something in the mind and you recognize it to be something in the mind, no problem. In your dream, suppose that in your dream, suppose you think of a cookie. And you woke up and you said, I was dreaming and I, in my dream I thought of a cookie. Correct. In your dream it was a thought of a cookie and it was in your mind. Right? And yes, in your mind, you, you thought of a cookie. But everything else you'll see in that situation would be false. The place you'd be sitting, the restaurant you are in, all of that is, right? Okay, so it's uh. just the physical manifestation of something based on which you are making a clear difference. It's, it's addition to all the other factors being... Right. Suppose in your dream, you dream that you are in the bed and sleeping like that. And in your mind, you're thinking of a blueprint. But that's an exact reporting of what's going on. Then it's not a dream. Right? You're fully aware that you're there in the bed and thinking about a blueprint. Mm -hmm. But usually if it's a dream, what will happen is, many of the other factors will not be correct. Right? You will not remember that you are in a dream, uh, that you are sleeping in your bed. You'll probably think you're in the office making a blueprint. Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, definitely, yes. Time, space, object, persons, things, all will be projected by the mind. Right. <coughs> Always go by your own, own experience. You will see definitely there is a difference between the waking and the dreaming. The, the actual thing will be you are on your bed and sleeping. And what you experience will be quite something else. In that case, it's a dream. Alright. Um, Alright. Now, third verse. Uh, yukti and Anubhava he has given. Yukti means reasoning, Anubhuti, Anubhava means experience. To do, do what? To prove that dreams are false or what we see in dreams are false. Now he's going to quote from the Upanishad. Number three. Abhavascharathadinam Abhavascharathadinam Shruyate Nyaya Purvakam Shruyate Nyaya Purvakam Vaitatyam Tena Vai Praptam Vaitatyam Tena Vai Praptam Swapna Ahu Prakashitam 
Now he's quoting from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. We hear in Shruyate means it's a reference to Shruti Upanishad. So we hear from the Upanishad. We find in the Upanishad. In which Upanishad is it? It is mentioned Brihadaranyaka Upanishad 4310. Four, chapter 4, section 3, Mantra 10. So um, there in that Upanishad it's mentioned that in a dream. You dream of going in a um, in a chariot, and uh, which is um, which is pulled by horses, which is yoked to uh, horses, and there are lanes and gardens and uh, fountains and palaces and people. And then the Upanishad says, and yet in reality, there are no chariots there, there are no horses there, there are no lanes there. Naratha, Naratha Yoga, Napantha, like that, it is mentioned. So, uh, that is what is being referred to here. We hear from the Upanishads, from the Upanishad, that the chariot is, chariot, etc. are absent. So, today you wouldn't dream of a chariot, unless you had seen uh, Ten Commandments or something like that, you know. But you'd, uh, you'd dream of going in your SUV, and the Upanishad today would say that there are no SUVs there. Uh, you dreamt of it. <laughs> so, Upanishad says that. And we hear it from the Upanishad that actually there were no chariots or horses or roads or gardens or people or palaces. Nothing was there. It was all projected by the mind. Vaitatyam tenavaipratam. Hence, we realize the falsity of the entities that are experienced in a dream. And how do we realize? Both by logic. Come, come. Both by logic and by Upanishad. Nyaya Purvakam, first by reasoning and then by the Upanishads, yeah. we realize that they are false. They are, the, the entities in dreams are not real. Done. So I hope by now we are sort of agreed that the entities in dreams are not real. From verse 4 onwards to verse 18. We have the actual, uh, the, the substance of this chapter, where we, we try to see that um, by reasoning, yeah, settle down. Where we, we see by reasoning that the experiences we have in the waking world are as false as what we see in the dreams. That is what Gaudapada wants to prove. So now we are beginning that, the, the most important section. Having established the dreams are not real. Dreams are dreams. The things which we saw in the dream are not real. Now from verse number 4 onwards. So here, here goes. Antasthanatu bhedanam, Antasthanatu bhedanam, Tasma jagarite smritam, Tasma jagarite smritam, Yatha tatra tatha swapne, Yatha tatra tatha swapne, Sangritatvena bhidyate, Sangritatvena bhidyate. 
So what does he say? As dream objects are unreal in a dream, so also because of that very reason the objects in the waking state are unreal. But objects in the dream differ because of existence inside the body and because of smallness of space. Now, he has not actually given the reason why the waking world is as false as a dream. He's introducing the topic. Um, what he's saying is, now you realize all the objects in the dream are false. I'm going to show now all the objects you see in the waking world are equally false. But there is certainly a difference between the dream and the waking. Why? Because uh, you cannot say, you cannot give the same reasons for falsity. In the dream, what, did, what reasons did we give? Time is not um, appropriate, uh, space is not appropriate. Uh, but here time and space are appropriate. A uh, 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 one and a half hour class will last for one and a half hours, sorry. <laughs> and, and if you are sitting inside the room, there is sufficient space for us to sit inside the room. So you cannot say it's inappropriate time and space or sufficient time and space are not here, which is there the dream. One thing has to be understood here carefully before we go any further. Remember, it's a point of perspective. The dream world we say is false and all the reasoning that we give all the experiences that we cite are all from the perspective of the waking world. In the dream world, from the dream perspective, from the dream, dream perspective, from the person in the dream, it's pretty real. If a dog is chasing me in the dream world, I'd better run. Because the dream dog, not the dog of my dreams, the dog which I see in the dream, which is <laughs> chasing me, is going to bite my body, which body? Not the one sleeping on the bed, the dream body. The body, again, not the body of my dream, body I dreamt up. So that, that body, if it bites, and a dream bite also, that is going to have dream pain. And you can drop the dream thing out of it because it's actually going to hurt in the dream. You're going to suffer. So all of that is going to happen uh, in the dream. You can't say everything, uh, you can't stand in the dream and say that particular drug is a dream. No. It's all going to work out in a particular way in a dream. From the perspective of the waking, all the events, people, places, all of them are dreams in the dream world. Similarly, in the waking world, all of these are appearances. And they are false. From which perspective? Not the waker's perspective. From Turiya. From Turiya perspective. From the perspective of pure consciousness, the witness consciousness. From whose perspective is the dream false? It's only waker's perspective. From the dream, when you wake up, sit in your bed, then only are you, are you um, uh, justified in saying, oh, it was a dream. And yes, it was a dream. Even when the dream was going on, it was a dream. But it was a dream for whom? The waker. Not for the person in the dream. For that person, it seems very real. It is pretty real. It feels real and it works out like, like real. And from the waker's perspective also, from our perspective, as long as I stand as one person apart from all of you, and I'm fully identified with this body and mind, this is who I am, and I end at the, end, at, at the boundary of the skin, that's it. Outside the skin, it's not me. When I feel like this, which most of us, we feel like that. This is the waker's perspective. From this perspective, this world is pretty real. 
This world is pretty real. It is unreal or it is an appearance from the Turiya perspective. What is the Turiya perspective? The Turiya perspective is that one consciousness in which the waker and the waker's world are appearing. Like what? Like dream. What is the dream perspective? That from the waker's perspective, the person in the dream and the world of the dream are both appearing in the mind of the, the, the one who is sleeping and dreaming. Right? From that perspective, it's a dream. And all those things are false appearances. From the perspective of consciousness, luckily you are consciousness, you are Turiya. So from your perspective of your real self, this is an appearance. But from the perspective of the assumed self, the limited self, the relative self, the, uh, what we identify, the body-mind self, it's pretty real. As long as I assume that this is who I am, then this is also equally real. I cannot, that's why Advaita is often misunderstood. I will stand here and say, all this is an appearance. I am Brahman. Not this I. Consciousness is Brahman. I as consciousness am Brahman. From that perspective, I am Brahman. In me, this one appears and as real as this is this. But only as real as this. Or I can also say, as false as this is this. But I cannot say, this is false and I am real. No. That would be making a very serious mistake and quite easily provable mistake. I need food and drink. If you say food and drink is false, then why do you need it? Who needs it? This body which is as real as the food and drink. Alright. So that, that has to be remembered. Falsity and reality depends on the perspective. In the dream, from the person pers- perspective of the person in the dream, all the things happening in the dream are as real as that person. From the perspective of the one who is dreaming, they are all false projections in the mind of the dreamer. From, for you and I, as long as we think we are this, then this world is also real. But when we become very clear about that one consciousness in which it is all appearing and I am that consciousness, from that perspective I can certainly say I am Brahman and the entire world including the limited self is a manifestation, is, is a projection, is an appearance, is false. Okay. Now what did he say here? Verse number 4. The, all the entities seen in the waking, they are similar to the entities seen in the dream in the respect that they are all false, but they are dissimilar in the sense that in the dream, the dream entities they display inappropriate or insufficient time and space. But the waking entities, they seem to have very sufficient time and space. Remember, again, waking entities have, all these things have sufficient time and space in the waking world. In the dream world, all those things seem to have sufficient time and space. The inconstancy, the contradictory was not, contradictoriness was not apparent in the dream. It's only when we wake up from this perspective, we say, oh, it happened here. There is no, there isn't sufficient space for trees and cars and all of that to be here. But this thinking was not there in the dream. In the dream it seemed to be another kind of waking. Right? Alright. You will feel like, oh, alright, we get it. Get, get along with it. Yes. How do you contrast the dream state in a similar manner with the deep sleep state? Mm, uh, what uh, contrast means? Turiya. Now, where is 
or deep sleep is the causal state of waking and dream. Waking and dream are also there in deep sleep, but in a causal state, in a seed state. So all three are appearances in Turiya. In fact, you can say the dream state is also false from the point of view of Turiya. Actually, what Advaita wants to say is, not that the dream state is false from the waking perspective. That we all know. You don't need Advaita to tell us. That's what Gaudapada was establishing. We all accept as a matter of common sense. That's why we call it dreams. We don't, what don't we say? Oh, it was just a dream. Which means it was false not to be taken seriously. You don't need Vedanta for that. But Vedanta is using it as an example to say, all three states are appearances in Turiya. Just as you consider a dream from the waking perspective, so does an enlightened person consider waking, dreaming, deep sleep from Turiya perspective. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Just as we consider a dream from a waking perspective, so does an enlightened person consider waking, dreaming, deep sleep from the Turiya perspective, from uh, the enlightened person's perspective. Now we get to the reasons. Why? We cannot say any longer that uh, insufficient space or insufficient time, that will not hold. But why? How do you know in this waking state itself that all of these are false from the Turiya perspective? How? What reason shall you give which will hold right now? Because one big difference, Gaudapada has not mentioned but I will bring it out in front of everybody is that we can wake up from a dream into the waking. Actually change a state. We change the state. The whole state disappears. And we have a new state. We can compare the two and say, oh, that was false. But Turiya, remember, is not a state. Remember? that was We, we studied it. Turiya is not a state. Turiya is the reality in which all these states come and go. So you, this is a fourth, but not really the fourth. It's a fourth in which the first three come and go. But it's the, actually the one in which three appear falsely. Hence, you don't have the option of actually sitting up in a Turiya room, in a Turiya bedroom and Turiya bed and <laughs> being a Turiya person and say, oh, that was a waking thing, it was false, now I am Turiya. No, if that happened, there would be no end to that regression. Uh, so, that does not happen. What happens is, here itself in the waking state, we have to wake up, not, f- not by changing a state, but from ignorance into knowledge. The waking up here is knowing. Understanding, realizing, that's why it's called enlightenment. It must dawn upon us that with, with respect to consciousness, this is an appearance. Okay, That is, that is an important connection which uh, has to be kept in mind. You won't suddenly sit up in bed suddenly and say, Oh, the Swami was right. Now the world of, has disappeared. Manhattan, Vedanta Society, everything has disappeared. My old life is gone. Now I have a new Turiya life, a Turiya house, a Turiya car, a Turiya, a Turiya dog or something like that. A Turiya park to walk the Turiya dog in? No. That's not going to happen. Yes. Just trying to get this right. So from the perspective of waking, yes. the, the dream state and the deep sleep state are both false. No, 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 no. The contents of the dreams are, are false. As in we just said that from the perspective of the waker, the dream state is unreal. Yes, the contents of the dream are But that you dreamt, that is real. No, the state is not unreal. Dream state is also not unreal. The contents. Yeah. And there are no contents of no deep sleep. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, um, all right. So now, 
can you convince me right now, because we are in the waking state now, we are in the Vedanta class in the waking state, now can you convince me here that the contents of this are all appearances from the perspective of consciousness, okay. What are the reasons? Can you convince the, the, me with, uh, with reasoning here? Verses 5 and 6 give you the reasons and the rest will be working it out in detail. But they will be introduced. The 5 and 6 are very important verses. Verse 5. Swapna jagarita sthane Swapna jagarita sthane Hekam mahur manishinaha Hekam ahur manishinaha Bhedanam hi samatvena Bhedanam hi samatvena Prasiddhe naiva hetuna Prasiddhe naiva hetuna It says Swapna Jagarita Sthane Bhedanam Bhedanam means different entities The various things and people and events that you see in the dream or in the, in, the waking, in the waking state, they are all similar. How are they similar? They are similar because they are all false. They are all appearances. Why? You have already said this, but why? Now give us the reason. Two reasons are going to be given. One here and one in the next one. Here, Gaudapada says, Prasiddhene vahetuna. Because of the, we are all eager to know what reason. How can you prove this to be false? He says, because of the well-known reason. What do you mean well-known well-known reason? <laughs> Luckily, Shankaracharya comes to our, our aid and what he drops is a bombshell. He says, you know what he says in substance, I'll tell you. He says, the world is false. And all the entities in the world are false. They are appearances. Why? Because you see them. Like, like you see the things in the dream. You saw things in the dream and they are false because of certain reasons we saw. They are false. You accept it. Now you see things in the world. One common thing is that you experience both. Because they are objects of experience, they are false. Now this is stunning because we are used to the, just the opposite. Because I see something, it's real for me. I see this book, so it's real. Why do you think there is a book in your hand? Because I see it. I touch it. Therefore it's real. And Shankaracharya here is saying is, because you see it, it must be false. Why? Jagat mithya drishyatvat, swapna drishyavat. In Sanskrit, the, the logic is this, that the world is false because it is seen. Just like the things you see in the dream. Why? There's no second. There's no Yeah, but why? You read, okay, too much Vedanta here. <laughs> yes, you, yes, you're right, but let me break it down for, uh, for everybody. Um, it would look, like toss everybody for a spin. <laughs> Scientists and philosophers and psychologists, you sound absolutely crazy. What you're supposed to say is, because I see it, hear it, smell it, touch it, therefore it is true. What Shankaracharya says is, whatever you see, hear, smell, touch, uh, what you think of, what you understand, what you remember, as long as they are all objects, objects are not true. 
Objects means jada, insentient, that which is an object is not true. Then what is true? The subject is true, according to Advaita Vedanta. How does that work? It works exactly like a dream. Think about it. In a dream, what is true? The place is not true. The time is not true. Even you, the person standing, the dead body, it's a dream body. Again, you know in what sense I mean a dream body. Then uh, that, that person, that body, even the thoughts and all of that going on in that person, none of them are true. But there is one thing true in the dream. What is it? Do you remember the story of King Janaka? What is the one thing true in the dream? Yes, the witness of the, the dreamer, the mind which is seeing the dream. And remember, the mind which is seeing the dream is not an object anywhere. The dreamer. In Hindi, they put it, the Sanskrit terms are very precise. One Swami put it very clearly. Aap swapna purush nahi hai. Aap swapna drashta hai. You are not the person in the dream. You are the dreamer. In the dream also you are there. But you are actually not that person. Who are you? You are the dreamer. That's why you can disavow. You can let go of all the terrible things which happened to the person in the dream. Because you realize I am not that person. I am the one who dreamt up all those terrible things. But I am untouched. I was happily sleeping or unhappily sleeping in my bed. But I was not touched by the, all the tragedies in the dream. Which happened to the person in the dream. Just like that. In this waking world also, you are the consciousness in which all these things are experienced. You are that awareness, the sentience, the consciousness in which... Hold on to the question, let me explain this thing. You are the consciousness in which all of these things are being experienced. And the things which are experienced in this consciousness, just like the things, he says, they are just like the things in the dream. Just like everything in the dream is not apart. Not an independent entity apart from the dreamer's mind. Similarly, every entity seen here is not an independent entity apart from the consciousness in which all of these are being experienced. If they do not have independent existence apart from consciousness, that is the very definition of mithya, falsity. What is the definition of falsity in um, Vedanta? Dependent existence. They appear... They do not have any real existence apart from the consciousness. Just like the snake appears in the rope, the water appears in the mirage, no water there. It's a desert. No snake there. It's, it's a rope. It appears dependently on the rope, dependently on the desert. Here all the things which appear here, they appear dependently upon you. You the consciousness. They will not appear without you. Think about it. I'll come to you. Hold on to that. This, this is a very important... It's, and it's not an easy thing. If it were easy, then it would have revolutionized our worldview. Our worldview is just the opposite. It's an objective worldview. It's the worldview of a person in the dream. I am here, you are all here. I don't think that this is all a dream and I am the dreamer. I think I am here and you are there. Space, time, a person, difference, bheda. I don't think it's all one mind. I don't think that. That's exactly our perspective in the waking world. Um, so, Swatantra Satta, independent existence, is a sign of reality. Paratantra Satta, that means dependent existence, is a sign of unreality. Now think about it. 
all these things are appearing to you in your awareness. If you were not aware, nothing in this world would appear. This is how Advaita is established. If I say, what is this? I said this earlier also. First response would be, book. But isn't it a more accurate response to say, it's a book in my experience? Isn't it more a, a whole, a, a complete description of the truth to say, I am seeing a book. It's not just a book. I am seeing a book. Or I am holding a book. So it's a book in my experience. The moment you say it's a book in my experience, consciousness has already entered the picture. Now comes a question, subject and object, consciousness and its objects, what is the relationship? That question comes. We'll take it up in detail, a little bit detail. Um, Advaita Vedanta would say the objects are not different from the, the witnessing consciousness. They are appearances in consciousness. Appearances of what? Appearances of consciousness. Consciousness itself, like the dreaming mind itself appears as the objects in a dream, the people in a dream, the place in a dream, time in a dream. All of that space, time, object, desha, kala, vastu in a dream is nothing but the dreaming mind. Similarly, in the universe which we experience, waking universe, everything that appears, space, time, objects, people, events, they are all appearances of that consciousness. So the consciousness is actually seeing itself in a sense, but as different. This illusion of difference, as, you, as long as you take this difference to be real, you identify yourself with one thing and you see all other things as different, samsara. Appearances will continue. Even after enlightenment, as long as you have eyes, you will see. You have ears, you will hear. You have skin, you will touch. You have a mind, you will think. Memory, you will remember. Emotions, you will feel. But all of them are your appearances. None of it here is different from you. You are everything or none of it is you. They are all appearances in you. They are equivalent statements. This is Vedanta. Let's put it in another way. It is put this way. That all objects appear to the subject. You need knowledge to talk about this, uh, the object. Otherwise, without the subject, you cannot talk about the object. Without yourself, none of the your experience would not be there and objects in the experience would not be there. It is here, there is a difference between materialism. Materialism will say whether you are there or not, the world exists apart from you. So here we will see the arguments there. But basically the Vedantic perspective is you cannot speak of objects without reference to the subject. The moment you say reference to the subject, the object then, you cannot prove the existence of the objects without the subjective consciousness, without the consciousness of the subject. If you cannot prove the existence of the objects without the consciousness, then in some sense all the objects experienced by consciousness are dependent on consciousness. If they are dependent on consciousness for their very existence, definitely all objects are dependent on consciousness for experience. Without consciousness, no experience. But they are also dependent for existence. That's what Advaita claims, the big thing that Advaita claims. Just like all objects in the dream are dependent on the dreaming mind for their existence. It's not that the world is there, the dream world is there and you go into a dream mode and you see the dream world for a while and come out of it. No. The entire dream world is created, is projected by your mind. Not even created, it's projected. Your mind becomes the dream world. Here it's consciousness which appears as this 
physical world. So the objects of the physical world have no existence apart from consciousness. This is the, it's, it's very radical. But you know, the more you understand Advaita, it's not radical at all. The more deeply you begin to understand Advaita and appreciate it, you begin to see they're just telling us the truth. They're just telling us what appears. Exactly, it's a, it's a very clear, in, in philosophy it's called phenomenology. It's a very clear phenomenological description of our experience. That's how we experience the universe. Okay, I will um, hold on to your questions. I'll make two points here, otherwise I'll forget. One is, just by the way, Monday, I went to this Monday, I went to a gathering of philosophers. It's called a philosophy cafe. It's run by two philosophers, one from CUNY uh, and one from Columbia University. And the discussion was very interesting. There, there were 70 participants in a small room in the, in the New York Society for Ethical Culture. And the subject, that's what drew me to the discussion. Subject was the most important, five most important questions in philosophy today. Five most important questions. And how do you know they are the most important questions? It's in, you can find the article, it's in Oxford University. Um, um, OUP website. There's a whole blog about it. Just Google five most important questions in philosophy or five great unsolved questions in philosophy. Yeah, that's what it said. Five great unsolved questions in philosophy. You know what are those questions? First, is there free will? Second, who am I? Third, remember this is nothing at all to do with uh, Vedanta. This is completely Western philosophy and the people there were, many of them are scientists and philosophers. The person who was leading the discussion is a biologist. Uh, his name is Massimo. So um, he is a professor of philosophy, at, uh, his chair in uh, CUNY. Um, third question, can we know anything at all? An epistemological question, skepticism basically. The, can we know anything at all? How do we know anything? Knowledge. You can immediately apply it. See, you think that you know so many, so many things in dream. Next moment you realize it's all false when you wake up. So can we really know anything for sure? That is, uh, it's a question in a branch called epistemology in philosophy. The fourth question is, um, what is death? Remember, not death in a physiological sense. That's an interesting question, but a question for a doctor. They'll have to decide what is death. They have to define what is death. Yes, do you need something? Yeah. Yes. Is something is something falling down? No. What is death? Remember, the question is not about physical death. The question was about death to us as a person, to you or me as this person, the conscious being. What is death to me? What will happen to me at death as this person? If I am the body, then I'm gone at death. When the body dies, then I'm gone. Um, but, if I'm, but if I'm not, is there any possibility of surviving death? Or what happens to this conscious entity which I call myself? Not the physical system, which of course breaks down at death. That's the fourth question. What is death? And the last question was, what is global justice? The question of justice, fairness, equality, justice. And the interesting thing was in the entire discussion which went on for two hours, six o'clock to eight o'clock, for two hours, almost 80% of the questions, comments, arguments, quarrels, they were all about one thing, consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
And again and again, the hard problem of consciousness came up, which David Chalmers has proposed. And the philosopher whom I'm speaking about, Massimo, he's completely against David Chalmers' point of view. He said that Chalmers just comes up with one idea after another, each worse than the earlier one. <laughs> Interesting. But, I, but what I noticed was, so he is a biologist and his approach is that um, uh, it is the brain which produces consciousness, which is mainstream science. Basically, science has, has to say that because um, the brain is a product, uh, is a part of the physical body. And, um, you know, from matter comes life, from life comes organized nervous systems and brains, and from organized nervous system and brain, consciousness arises. Like that candle burning, so that chemical reaction in the, in the candle produces a flame, light and heat. Similarly, consciousness is produced by the brain. How, if you ask, he said, we don't know. We're trying to find out, and I'm hopeful one day we will find out. That's, that's, the, that's the position of mainstream science. But... Uh, there's a leading group of, a big group of philosophers and some scientists now who are saying it's not possible. That's what David Chaba says. That's why he calls it the hard problem. Anyhow, whether you agree or not, even if you take a materialist point of view, that everything can be reduced to matter only, uh, no Vedanta, no idealism, no mind, or anything like that, it's all matter. If you say that, even then I noticed one thing. That here in Manhattan in the 21st century, in a group of scientists and philosophers, almost all of them said they were atheists. They spent 80% of the time talking about, quarreling about, questioning about consciousness. Which is very good. That thing is, <laughs> that thing is indisputable. That thing is indisputable. And then I, I pushed a little, I asked a few questions. And I, for example, I asked what will... Uh, um, Suppose they were, he was speaking out against uh, the panpsychist view of David Chalmers that consciousness is fundamental and all over the universe it's spread into everything. And he said it's a crazy idea. There is no proof for such a thing. Why? And his answer is very interesting. This is the biologist and philosopher who's leading the discussion. He said, because if that were true, panpsychism, then we would have to change our entire worldview. That I'm not willing to do. <laughs> that, yeah. So he says that's an extraordinary claim and it requires extraordinary proof. So where is the proof that there is consciousness in everything? So anyway, that's, that led off to a different uh, angle altogether. But I pointed out, isn't it the hard problem of consciousness which has led to the, such a claim like panpsychism, everything is consciousness? Why has it come at all? Why are we discussing it? It's because of the hard problem of consciousness. And he agreed, yes. He agreed that it's a hard problem. And the way he put it is this. Let me tell you what a hardcore materialist would say. He said this. Uh, he said, just think about it. He said, those who, prove, who are putting forward this hard problem of consciousness, that consciousness cannot be produced by the brain, they are saying, I cannot imagine how a physical system like a brain will produce consciousness. And I say to them, well, it's, uh, it's a failure of your imagination, that's all. Why can't it produce? No, that is <laughs> no, no answer. No. Huh? That's an extraordinary claim. That's an extraordinary claim, yeah. No. <laughs> so, so it goes. Anyhow, I'm not, even if you do not take sides in this debate, it's very interesting to see so much of it's going on. And I saw the mood in the room. They're very pro-consciousness, not pro-matter. <laughs> so the people in the room, they were trying to push. Um, and yet, all of them, I saw why, 
Uh, so very interestingly, none of them are trying to prove God or religion. It's not fashionable. Mm. And yet, they will take a consciousness-only point of view. So that's not materialism. And yet, not, not a traditional religion also. So that's what, where it is at. That's one point. Um, the second point I want to show is this. I just want to put it before you. It's an analysis given, very nice analysis given by uh, Swami. Uh, about consciousness and its object. Subject and object. It goes like this. I'm writing, actually the words used originally were chit jada. Chit means consciousness, jada means an object of consciousness. Before we go into it, let me be very clear what I mean. Anything that you experience is jada, object. Anything that you can experience. Because it is experienced by consciousness. If you are experiencing it, it is being experienced by consciousness. What do you experience? You experience this pen. You experience the eye by which the pen is seen. Because you can open the eye, close the eye, can think about the eye. You experience the mind which is thinking about the pen. So, physical object is an object, according to Vedanta. The body is an object, according to Vedanta. But the mind is also an object. Here is where it differs from uh, the common approach. In common approach, the mind is the subject and everything else is an object. But Vedanta says, on, on what definition? How do you define? Vedanta has a very elegant definition. Whatever is experienced is an object. Your very language says it. It's an object of experience. The experiencing consciousness is not an object. You see the whole problem in consciousness studies now. I'm very glad that people are studying it. But the whole problem is this. Our entire scientific approach to studying anything is to reduce it to an object and study it. And that works perfectly when you are studying objects. But when you are studying the subject itself, now you are saying that you have to reduce the subject to an object in order to study it. Because, why? Only reasons we are used to doing it. It's a habit. Right? It's like they are counting the tenth man. The nine were outside, so the tenth also must be outside. Everything that we have studied till now are objects. So consciousness also must be an object. Let's study it objectively. You can't find it objectively, so you come up with wild things like there is nothing called consciousness. Or it must be produced by an object, so on. Anyway, so anything that you can that can be experienced is an object, including the mind, thoughts, ideas, what we are doing now, all of it is object. And the consciousness is the one which is that which is experiencing. Now let's I'm calling consciousness C an object O. So what is, an ob what is the object? The entire universe in fact. Everything in the universe basically whatever we experience is an object. Including body, life, mind, everything. So relationship between consciousness and object. What does science say? Or materialism let's say. Materialism. What does it say? All this is from the analysis given by a um, Swami, a, um, a Vedanta teacher. Very nice uh, Analysis. He says, materialism says, consciousness generate, uh, emerged from the object. What is the object? Body, mind, you know. Object is matter, the universe, the physical universe. Physical universe 
evolved into evolved into life living objects and living objects evolved into more complex nervous systems and brains and from that somehow consciousness is produced so objects have generated consciousness that is the materialistic approach consciousness is nothing but a byproduct or a product of objects basically this sums up the mainstream science mainstream science wants to say this this objective universe has generated consciousness traditional religion theism for example it says god let's call it consciousness as god has created the objective universe traditional religion any traditional theistic religion will say god and no religion ever will say our god is an unconscious god only freud might say that uh, <laughs> our god has an unconscious but unconscious god is not god must be a conscious entity every god is a personal in, uh, god and so god must be conscious and this conscious entity has somehow created an objective universe so god is taken as the creator this is the position of theistic religion worldwide whether it is judaism christianity islam or in hinduism you have vaishnavism uh, shaivism shaktaism all the theistic approaches they say consciousness has generated the object god creates the universe okay remember this is a very very broad but very interesting analysis you will see and he's coming to what advaita is sankhya and yoga in indian philosophy these are two well known philosophies sankhya philosophy and yoga philosophy by yoga i don't mean the downward dog position <laughs> hatha yoga i mean the yoga philosophy of patanjali i mean the yoga philosophy of patanjali and sankhya philosophy what do they say consciousness and object in their terminology prakriti purusha they are parallels there is an objective universe and there is consciousness separate from that objective universe which interacts with the objective universe prakriti purusha consciousness and object consciousness exists by itself and the universe exists by itself by its own laws just like what science would say perfect but consciousness did not evolve from objects consciousness is by itself it's a fundamental reality and this is what basically david chamus is pushing he does not know it's sankhya uh, 6000 years old but it's now called panpsychism oh i raised this question in the discussion i said many of the arguments here have been shadowed by uh, theories in uh, eastern philosophy thousands of years ago and he said not only eastern western philosophy also a greek philosophers also he admitted it he said many of these issues have been discussed earlier uh, and he said they had come up with ancients had come up with pretty deep understanding of these issues also anyhow sankhya and yoga say consciousness and object are parallel both exist independently and they interact with each other one does not depend on the other consciousness purusha did not create prakriti prakriti also did not create purusha nature does not generate consciousness and consciousness does not generate nature consciousness illumines and experiences nature and nature is dynamic and produces experiences for consciousness that is the idea of sankhya and yoga then comes buddhism mahayana buddhism or even theravada says consciousness and object material both are void shunya this physical it it appears but is not real and the experiencing subject is also not real 
बोथ आर वाइड शून्य इज अ वेरी ब्रॉड वे ऑफ पुटिंग बुद्धिज्म इट्स नॉट एज सिंपल एज दैट बट एनी वे नाउ वॉट डज वेदांत से दिस हेर वी कम टू अद्वैत वेदांत वॉट डज अद्वैत से अद्वैत सेज कॉन्शियसनेस एलोन एपियर्स एज द ऑब्जेक्ट कॉन्शियसनेस एपियर्स देर इज कॉन्शियसनेस ओनली इट ओनली एपियर्स और लुक्स लाइक द ऑब्जेक्टिव यूनिवर्स दिस इज द डिफरेंस बिटवीन दिस एंड थियस्टिक इट्स नॉट दैट कॉन्शियसनेस क्रिएट्स द ऑब्जेक्ट there is god apart from the world who has created a world no that's why the example of clay pot it is the clay alone which appears as the pot in the pot there is nothing but clay in the objective universe there is nothing but consciousness here is the dream example it becomes useful really speaking everything that you experience in the dream is nothing other than the dreamer's mind though the dreamer's mind does not appear anywhere you don't experience it in the dream but every item in the dream person in the dream experience place in the dream event in the dream everything is the dreamer's mind only similarly everything in this objective universe is this consciousness only and this consciousness only is experiencing this that is what the mandukya upanishad says it is one thuria appearing as waker and waker's universe dreamer and dreamer's universe deep sleeper in the deep sleep causal universe this is the advaita position whichever you agree with that's a different point but i like this analysis it puts everything down in front of you very clearly what is it you're claiming what are you trying to defend so materialism defends object is real consciousness is a product there was a we talked about one of the leading uh, philosophers scientists also churchland who says there is no consciousness so some of the people who were discussing it including the philosopher who was leading the discussion he said that i have consciousness i won't go so far i don't know if churchland is, has no consciousness at all but i have consciousness but but just think why is this extremely smart philosopher here in the 21st century in um, in the modern world here why is he pushed to this uh, position of claiming there is no consciousness why because the whole idea is object alone is real material universe alone is real somehow i have to dismiss this consciousness so objective universe produces consciousness it's a byproduct it's secondary without the object will consciousness remain no if the particular arrangement of body and brain and so these things disintegrate then there will be no consciousness because it's a product of this particular thing the theistic approach religious approach um theological approach is here consciousness means god god produces a physical universe and the sankhya yoga approach is consciousness and universe are parallel realities both are definitely different one cannot be reduced to the other but both coexist just as you experience your own life sankhya yoga is a pretty reasonable approach how do you experience your own life as subjects encased in an objective shell isn't it that's how you experience yourself as persons embodied 
You cannot say I am a being of pure awareness. No. Here is a body which requires food and shelter and space. So it is somehow it is connected to me. It's tagging along. It goes wherever I go. Or it's often like I am going inside it. So I have a physical dimension to my being. I cannot really deny it. But I also have definitely a subjective dimension. I am a thinking, willing, feeling, uh, um, uh, understanding, remembering, hating, loving person. So that these two are together. That's the point of Sankhya Yoga. And Buddhist theory is that both are appearing but both are not real. If you investigate both, both will disappear into the void, Shunyam. It's a little injustice on the Buddhist point of view. I mean, it's not, their, their point of view is not so simple. It's uh, more sophisticated than that. But anyway, and the Advaita point of view is consciousness only. Here that Swami, I just for the fact Allah of, uh, I mean, completing it, he makes a distinction between Kashmir Shaivism and Advaita of Shankara. He says according to Kashmir Shaivism, consciousness vibrates, the vibration of, the, of consciousness, Panda, is the physical universe. And uh, Advaita says no question of vibration or anything like that because vibration implies change. Consciousness does not change. Change is in the physical universe. So consciousness ap uh, appears as the universe, not vibrates into the, into the universe. In the Kashmiri Shaiva point of view, consciousness which they call Paramashiva, that's also real, universe is also real. But in Advaita point of view, consciousness alone is real. Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya. And Jiva, Brahmaivanapara. Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance of what? Of Brahman. And what are you? This one. Brahman. Just now you use the dream example. You'll understand this very clearly. You, the dreamer, appear as the dream world. The dream world, everything in it is false. What is, uh, and what is true? The dreamer alone is true. And what are you? You are the dreamer, not the dream world. Not even the person in the dream world. So that's what Gaudapada is trying to do. Okay, let's take a few questions before we go on. Wait, 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 wait. There are others who are... Huh? That if you repeat the first point, the, uh, that scientists uh, say the concept, uh, object... Or, or I'll quickly repeat it. The, materialist, the materialistic approach, theistic approach, Sankhya Yoga approach, Buddhistic approach, Advaita approach. Yeah, scientist means material. I'm saying materialist. So the materialist approach is objective universe generates consciousness. Matter generates consciousness. Then they should know the mind. They fail to know the mind today. Sanity and insanity, they are dying to know mind. They couldn't near a scientist. They fail. No, mind. So they, their analysis is very simple. Mind is br mind is brain. Neuroscience. No, they can prove. They cannot find what is insanity and sanity today. Or they are dying to prove that. They are, they are they are working very hard at it. But so that's why that's why you see that's why you see problems in the mind. Although Advaita would say even mind is object, but problems in the mind are to be solved by giving pills, material things, medicine. Which is an object. Mind is also an object. Given an object, it will be solved. Um, it's a paradigm. But you see how we are defined by these paradigms. We're defined by these paradigms. And this paradigm has an extraordinary power. Materialistic paradigm has an extraordinary power. Why? Because as long as you are operating within the objective universe, it will work fine. Pretty fine. But now we are beginning to see as you work at the very most fundamental level of the objective universe, 
where we, perhaps you are coming close to its basis as consciousness, then the objective approach starts breaking down. At some level you have to introduce consciousness. Yesterday there was a, a scholar here who said, we are finding serious problems in replicating experiments, experimental data, at, uh, of even in fundamental sciences, which is strange. You would expect fundamental sciences to be rock solid. But they are saying, no, they are not rock solid, they are statistical, probabilistic. Maybe. Why is it so suddenly, why does it become so fluffy at, at, when you go deep down? Anyway, so th this is the paradigm. There was a, there was, yes. Swami, I'll come to you next. And I'll come to you, yeah. These five uh, cannot be true simultaneously. So, is it that one of these must be the truth and other four are false hypotheses? Or is, is it that one may be true for me and another one is true for another person? Um, logically speaking, one of them is probably true. The others... At the most, you can say, under certain certain parameters and circumstances, others will seem to be true. As a subset, as part of the paradigm. But because completely contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time. You see, um, Harry Potter, whatever he is doing in, in the movie, yes, it's true at the level of the movie. But at another level, it is just a screen and light and sound. There is no Harry Potter, no movie. So did Harry Potter fight with, uh, uh, with, with, with the villain, with magic and all of that? You'll say yes and you'll also say no. Which is more fundamental? No. Because that yes is, in, is part of a fictional universe. So if you, for example, this Advaita theory, it can actually be uh, reduced into theism. Because if you take this world not as a, manifestation or appearance of consciousness as something real, then consciousness plus a real power has produced a universe, you have got religion then. If you keep consciousness out of the picture and just deal with the objective universe, you will get science. The whole thing becomes problematic if you bring consciousness into the picture. If you forget consciousness, <laughs> but what Advaita will say, how ridiculous is that? You are forgetting the very basis of your experience. You are forgetting the experiencer. You are doing science by forgetting the scientist. Right? But it doesn't matter. Suppose you do. Suppose you do. Suppose you keep the person out of it. Then you will get science. You will get science. And science will work perfectly. Um, and so it has been working very well. Uh, but not fundamentally if you probe too much, if you go too deep, uh, it will inevitably end up with the conscious uh, element. Yes, I'll come to you. Uh, first, I'll go, go to him. Um, and that's what I think is happening in the world of science. Uh, as you probe deeper, there's a book called Impossibility, John Barrows, where he shows that in every field of science today, in every field of science, um, biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, we are turning up with paradoxes. Because the prediction was by 19th century that we will finish science. By, 90, by 20th century, within 100 years, 200 years, we will have complete bodies of knowledge. And everything will seamlessly tie together, like a unified theory. But we are having terrible problems now. I don't understand the thing at the depth. The scientists know better. 
but I hear they say that the standing scandal at the heart of physics that uh, you cannot reconcile the very small with the very large this apparently there's a problem with the models used both models work very well but they don't work with each other sounds like most of our corporations <laughs> they don't work with each other and even the more fundamental it is the worse the problem becomes as you go from physics even more fundamental is mathematics you come to something like Gödel's incompleteness theorem, where you have mathematical truths, truths which probably cannot be proved. Um, something like consistent systems are not complete, and complete systems um, will be inconsistent. Something like that. The mathematics is, of course, far beyond anything I can understand. So he says, at the heart of all our fundamental systems of knowledge. We are coming up with paradoxes, but why are we coming up with paradoxes? Uh, that is, especially when very smart people in the last century thought we will complete everything. In mathematics, I know there's something called Hilbert's program or something, and the mathematicians know about it better. That there are some problems which are unsolved. If you solve it, finally you'll have a neat system. Uh, Bertrand Russell himself tried to complete mathematics, give fundamental basis to mathematics on the basis of logic. But logic itself became uh, an inc inconsistent system. The pro theory of sets, uh, the problem of sets and supersets. So anyway, all of that. All right, let's uh, come to the questions. Yes. Hmm. Uh, I don't want to debate with Shankar, obviously. Yes. But um, to use uh, the proof that is the object that uh, demonstrates that, isn't that a self-fulfilling truth? The, the what? A self-fulfilling truth, because he, you presume that there is consciousness, but actually you have to prove it. So if you use the object, right, right. So how how can I? Yes. The See, this is the problem with the materialistic paradigm. We think you have to prove an entity before you can talk about it, which is true of what? Of objects. Yeah, but if Shankar says that that is the proof. Yes. No, not scientist. But what I'm saying is, the very fact that we ask this question, this is very important. This is very. This is a problem with the modern our worldview. You see, in uh, Gaudapada's time, what did Gaudapada say? Because of the well-known reason. What well-known reason? This is this is mind-blowing for us. Mind-blowing for us. Shankara was was kinder. He he spelt it out for us. You know you know spelt it out. If you actually go to the commentary. You know, spelt it out how much? One word, he says. Well-known reason, Drishyatvat. But it's mind-blowing for us. But you know why it's mind-blowing? The more you try to understand what they're trying to talk about, the more obvious it will appear. Not that he is begging the question or assuming something. Rather, let me break it down. Let's follow this question. What proof is there that consciousness is there? That is the question. What proof is there that this pen is there? I see it. I can touch it. I can use it. These are the proofs. Right? Hmm? Perceptual proof. Proof in use. All of these are proofs. Utility. These are proofs. Now, here Advaita says, proofs to what? To whom is it being proved? To consciousness. See, this is what Advaita says. Look. The, the term used in Indian philosophy is pramana prameya vyavahara. Pramana means proof. Prameya means thing to be proved. 
and it says all pramana prameya vivahara all all usage of proof and things to be proved they all depend on consciousness it is consciousness which deploys instruments of proof to prove objects to be proved is that true or not think about it your eyes show you the presence of a pen what does it depend on eyes pen mind ultimately you must be a conscious entity to operate these instruments they report to you they prove things in the world to you they do not prove you rather you prove their existence to whom do eyes exist to consciousness and through the eyes to whom does a pen exist to consciousness look at are you following me how we are completely reversing the way of thinking and you will say what is the justification for doing this i will say this is a simple and most devastating statement the justification is your own experience moment to moment day to day all the time science religion superstition rationality all of them depend on what consciousness knowledge ignorance understanding not understanding theory falsification of a theory where are theories in the mind mind is revealed to what to consciousness by consciousness i'm using a broad term any word you can use consciousness sentience awareness anything that is object which is it must be revealed to something if you are look at this that's why i used the sentence earlier do you, do you remember describe this you will say it's a pen i said no a uh, more precise statement of the truth is it is a pen in my experience i am experiencing a pen is it not true everything is ultimately in our lives so science is also in our lives materialism religion spirituality all in our lives it's it's us who is doing all of this and basically what is happening what is the one thing which is crucial for us to be awareness everything consciousness is the proof of the object object is not proof of the consciousness subject is proof of the object object is not proof of the subject you know that objects exist objects do not know you everything for example let's take a simple example here the pen do you know that the pen exists or does the pen know you exist you will say how do i know advaita vedanta follow your experience how are you experiencing the situation now are you experiencing the situation as pen knowing you or you knowing the pen <laughs> you are knowing the pen be confident about it yes. knowing means seeing you are seeing the pen right the pen is not seeing i see you no <laughs> that would be scary but but the way you are experiencing it is that even if the pen came and said i see you it would still be you who experienced the pen saying that i see you right so you are seeing the pen with your eyes now are you aware of your eyes or are the eyes aware of you you are aware of the eyes eyes are open eyes are closed i need glasses you are aware of the eyes your thoughts about your eyes about your body about the world are you aware of the thoughts or are the thoughts aware of you take a simple example 2 plus 2 is 4 it's a thought think it right now 
Were you aware of the thought or was that 2 plus 2, 4 aware of you? You were clearly aware of the thought. So everything in this universe, whether it's a physical object outside, whether it's a bit of data in, in your scientific instrument reading, whether it's uh, um, uh, something you see, hear, smell, touch, whether it's something you understand, do not understand, whether it's something you can recall, whether it's something you've forgotten, memory working, memory not working, whether it's something you feel, emotions, all of it is appearing in awareness, in consciousness. And what I want to say is, it's not a speculative theory which I'm saying. It's more you understand it, you see this is a theory, this, this is a statement which does not require defense, which does not require proof. It's a very important question you asked. I'm glad you asked this. Shankara does not assume it because for him the one self-evident thing is awareness. Everything else requires proof. Everything in the objective universe requires proof. You can ask, how did you know it? You can ask, how do you know? I know it by seeing, hearing, smelling, touching. I know it by scientific experiments. I know it by believing in my, what my preacher told me. All these, I have to give some proof. How do I know? This is called epistemology, justified knowledge. I have to give justification for knowledge. But what Shankara points out is stunning. It's the simplest fact. Swami Vivekananda called it the open secret. It's the simplest fact of our life, the first fact of our life. That all of this justification is done for consciousness, at the behest of consciousness, in awareness. If you're not aware of it, none of it would exist at all. Why we find it difficult to grasp is we have deeply imbibed the materialistic paradigm. Matter is real. I am something generated by matter. No. Your own experience gives lie to that assertion. This is what I'm saying. Yes, Bill. Yes. And he went down to Times Square and uh, during rush hour. <laughs> would he look both ways before crossing the street? Sure. <laughs> you are asking the old idealist versus realist argument. Berkeley, Bishop Berkeley's thing. You know, when, when uh, what was his name? Johnson? Samuel Johnson? I refuted thus, he said, by kicking a rock. That everything exists in the mind. But if you kicked a rock in your dream, it would still hurt your dream foot. If Gaudapada does not look this way and that way, in his consciousness, the Gaudapada body would be run over by, uh, the, by a taxi in his consciousness only. In that consciousness, in that one awareness, you would have the experience of the body being run over by a cab. You know, isn't that true? I'm asking for a paradigm shift. See, this question arises only if you think, I am the body and the world is in my imagination. No, that is not true. If you are the body, I've said earlier, very important. If you are the body, then this world is exactly physically real for you. 
There is no use saying that it is in my mind. But I am not saying that you are the body. I am saying you are the consciousness in which the body along with its world appears. Just like in the dream, you are not the person in the dream. You are the dreamer. <coughs> Suppose in the dream, you cross Times Square without looking this way and that way. And a dream cab came and hit you. What would happen? The guy in the dream would be hit, would suffer. What, what would happen to the dreamer? Nothing. You just wake up and say it was a nightmare. So that's the example. But remember the clear differences between dream example and, uh, and this thing. Okay, this is one reason. And this is what Gaudapada throws out as um, well-known reason. Thanks to Shankara, we know what he's talking about. Now Gaudapada will give his own reason. Next reason. Two powerful reasons. We don't have time today. Alright, we'll just take one or two questions and end. The second reason, two reasons to um, say why he's trying to prove that this world also is an appearance in consciousness. He's trying to prove this by reasoning. Okay, let's take it up one by one. Yes, I'll come to you. Um, so, a few years ago, I think Elon Musk, uh, in our talk, he said that there's a good chance that all of us are living, living in simulation. simulation. He'd better hope that now because he's, uh, he's so, in trouble now. So, I have two yeah. questions. So, did this come up in the conference that you went to? And second, isn't it very similar to Advaita Vedanta? It just no, be careful. It is similar, but it's not also. It is very similar to what is called subjective idealism. Okay. It's like, what he's saying is like the dream. Like you are a dreamer, you, you generate an entire dream world. So like that, he says there is some super intelligent computer which is generating and we are all living in this simulation. Uh, like the Matrix movie. Advaita is not saying that. Advaita is using that as an example. You must... Uh, see, if you, if you stop there, no problem. You'll, you'll think that I've learned a cool theory. But if you take the one more step which I'm pushing you towards, to show you that it's a fact right now which you can see right now as a fact. It's a tremendous fact which you can see right now. Not as a cool theory you learned. That the Shankara or Gaudapada was some um, 7th century Elon Musk. No, Elon Musk's theory is a theory, right? It's, it's an interesting hypothesis. This is, he's not saying it as an hypothesis. He's trying to make us see that it's the most basic fact of our life. You, you will, why it's difficult to see is, you are caught up in the dream analogy and in the simulation analogy. But, don't, but there's a difference between that. Advaita is not saying it's like being dreamt up by your mind. Rather, he's saying that it's appearing in consciousness right now. And it's a simply a statement of fact. That you have to see. If you see that, that's just next one step away from enlightenment. At least you've got it intellectually. Then the rest will follow as a matter of fact. In fact, one great Advaita logician, Sri Harsha, philosopher, 11th century, his entire book is a refutation of all other philosophies. He does not attempt to prove Advaita. He says, pure Advaita does not require a proof. It requires, it requires clearing up confusions. Every other philosophy and theory is a confusion. They are not wrong. They work at their level. Science works at its level. Theology will work at this level, given certain parameters. If you block out certain things, but if you take pure naked truth as it is, it's a continuously revealed truth to you. That you are this pure consciousness, ever free, 
The world is nothing different from you. And you are this ever free consciousness all the time. Then take your time. Have fun. There's no problem. It's your simulation. It's your video game. <laughs> by one by one. You, you had a question. I'll come to you. You had a question? No. no you, you had a question? Yes. It is true. I would not say we have deteriorated. Why, did, why be negative? But yes, there is a change. There is a change. The change is this, that um, as one historian put it, it is for the first time in known history that we have large sections of the world's population who are atheists. Especially intelligent, educated, thinking people can no longer believe in religion. The meeting I went to, they're like the intellectual cream in, in Manhattan, outside the university circles itself. But if you get a collection of intelligent people in, interested in the most important questions of philosophy, so you'll get that kind of crowd. Almost everybody there was an atheist. Or, or at least not willing to admit any kind of religion because it's not cool. It, it's, it's stupid to be, to be religious. So where, why have we come here? It's, um, it's a, perhaps it's a sign of our times. It's, I think what it requires is a philosophy, a, a spirituality which, is, um, which, is, which works well with science. If a spirituality does not go well with science, you know, I've thought about it. The fundamental problem is scientific materialism has a claim upon the truth. Mm. Even if you don't like it, after some time, when you, even if a little bit of science you know, and you know religion, you will feel, even if you don't like it, you will feel science is real and religion is a belief. Science is a claim upon the truth. And spirituality also likewise must be rooted in experience and truth. That's why Vivekananda was so powerful and when he said religion is realization. Religion is not just believing something. It must be grounded in our lived experience. Yeah, but you're then going down into the grassroots and finding out what's broad. But I'm giving you a broader picture of why people feel uh, that science is true and religion is a belief. That's why I'm giving. In general, that's the feeling among the people, you know, so in general. I, my statistics show that almost 60% of the scientists believe in God. Not that they don't, but they do. 60%. But Richard Dawkins pointed out, somebody asked Richard Dawkins that... Uh, Less than 1% of the world's population uh, is atheist. So why are you making so much about atheism? And he gave a devastating reply to that. Do you remember what he said? He said, you're right. Less than 1% of the population is atheist. But if you look at the population of PhDs, how many of them are atheists? You'll find maybe 20, 30 or 40% are atheists. If you look at the population of Nobel Prize winners, a survey was done. 
More than 90% are atheists. So, why? Because conventional religion no longer has that power to command respect. Uh, conventional religion is on the back foot um, in, in the face of this very aggressive atheistic kind of materialism. The question here was, why is this world, why has it changed like this? I'm trying to answer that. Uh, um, not that I, I support this kind of worldview, but I'm trying to answer why has it come like this. So I was just reading Nietzsche. N Nietzsche in the, that, you know, the death of God, that, that portion. This, he says, and he says very interestingly, the madman comes into the town square. He has a lantern and he says, where is God? Where is God? And the people surround him and they laugh at him. And they say that, you know, it's the local atheists. They say, oh, has God uh, disappeared? Is God hiding from you? Has God gone on a trip? Uh, they're, they're joking. And he says, my friends, we have killed God, you and I. We have killed God. He says, very beautiful language. He says, our knives are, st we have killed God, we have buried God, and God is decomposing. <laughs> He, he says that, but it's very, very evocative language. It's this stench of the decomposing God which is filling our world today. It's, it's that falling apart of, what, what he's pointing at is, it's the entire system of worldview, morals and all, which is built on theism, on an old kind of religion. That is falling apart. It's not sustainable. He says, can you feel the cold, the darkness of space enveloping you, of, of time, of eternity coming? That What repentance can we have for the murder of God? Is this deed not too great a deed for us? And then he goes on. In killing God, are we not making gods of ourselves? Things like that he's saying. Um, and then he smashes the lantern finally and he says, perhaps my time has not yet come. There are still people who believe in God, but th that time is going. Um, he's not saying that God is dead or it's a good thing. He's saying that he's just pointing out what she said. This is the time we live in. This is where Vivekananda comes, Ramakrishna comes and says, God is real. Religion, as has been taught, handed down to us by our ancients, all religions, they are real. They, it can be, it's a matter of experience. I have experienced it. So can you. And I'll, I'll come to you. So really, it, it is because you are using experience as a reason for proof. I'm telling you religion also is a matter of experience. So that is the extraordinary power of which Vivekananda brought into religion because of Sri Ramakrishna also. Religion is realization, not believing in something. It is absolute. And he says, very interesting in a place. He says, religion can, uh, should be put to the same tests as science. Huh. And he says that I am confident that religion will pass the test. Why? Because he adds something very interesting there. Very gently he adds something, which is all what, what I've been talking about now. He says, because... Religion has an internal mandate which science does not. What does that mean? That means this consciousness I'm speaking about. This is your internal mandate. This is the one which shines in all your life. All your life is because of this consciousness. It is you who you are. Your science, religion, atheism, theism, belief in God, death of God. Everything is in consciousness. Without it, none of this would be. It is the internal mandate which vouches for the reality of religion.
Nietzsche, it's in his book. It's called the gay science. So he says the, the man, he calls him the madman. So that it's a recurring trope in Nietzsche, the, like Zarathustra, for example, he comes as a madman, thus spake the Zarathustra, like that. Kashmiri Shaivism. There is a book called Spandakarika. Kashmiri Shaivism. Kashmiri Shaivism. That is also a kind of non-dualistic philosophy. Abhinava Gupta, Utpaladeva, um, uh, I think Shemaraja and many others were there. Um, who wrote the Shiva Sutra? Who discovered Shiva Sutras? I forget. So the famous book is Shiva Sutra. Uh-huh. Universe is a vibration of consciousness. Spandakarika. There's a, it's called Spanda, vibration. How many years? It is about, um, historically speaking, about 1300, 1400 years ago in Kashmir. The Shiva Sutras were discovered first. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic philosophy. Vasugupta. Fantastic philosophy. In fact, it is, it, I'll, if I sometimes have chance, I'll speak about it. It's really incredible. I mean, I would say next to Advaita, it's my favorite philosophy. Yes. Probably yes. said like when the dreamer awakens, the dream falls off. Yes. When the Chaitanya awakens, does the Chara fall off? Yes, fall off means what? Disappear. No, it does not exactly. It does not disappear. What That's why. Happens? What happens is, it's not the Chaitanya awakens. You awaken to the fact that you are Chaitanya. Chaitanya is here right now. Yes. Are you not conscious now? You are. But what has happened is, I, the consciousness, have attached myself, limited myself with I am a man, I am Sarva Priyananda, I am here, I am a body. If you leave all these aside and just take the I am by itself, the limitless I am, that points to the pure consciousness. Now, when you do that, it's not that the world will disappear. world will continue, but you will realize all of it is none other than me. You will understand that. You will feel it. It's all in you. As, as it is, but as it is means you will clearly understand this jada is nothing, that this world of objects is nothing other than I the consciousness. I the consciousness am appearing as all of this. Right now it's not like that. Right now what is it? Separate. I the consciousness am experiencing an objective universe. What is that objective universe? Something separate from me. I cannot really claim I am that also. Or that's me. No. But then you will be honestly able to claim all of this is me. But me not as the physical body. Okay, um, quickly. Wait, you've had your chance. We'll, we'll come back to you later on. Anybody else was there? No. All right, last. Shanti, my question is a little bit different. Close relationship between death and consciousness. Let me spell out. From my childhood, I tried to understand the mother or some innocent people couldn't recognize their own children. In my case, I investigated that and at the time of death, three persons who could not recognize their children, but at the time of death, they could recognize. And it made me so much sick because I don't understand what is the relation between death and awareness. Pure consciousness has an impact with death at the time of death. That person never could recognize their children at the time of death. All right. From the very uh, question, you will see that you are talking about the mind, not about consciousness. As Consciousness is constant all throughout. Suppose you cannot recognize. It's a consciousness which shows that you could not recognize. Right. 
Suppose you recognized. It's because of consciousness you see that you, yeah, I was able to recognize. It is the unchanging background of all your experiences. Yes. Let me do the Shanti because we have really run out of time. And, and then we'll come back. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Next class, we'll see the second reason which Gaudapada gives. And uh, that reason is also very interesting because many people have asked me in the class and outside the class that Swami, this real and false, this distinction, it is difficult. Eternal and non-eternal, temporary and permanent. This we understand because uh, things in the world are seen to be temporary. The things in the world are seen to be false that we don't see. We don't feel that. We feel, we, everybody knows things are non-eternal. People are born and they die. Things are produced and destroyed. So, anitya, temporary, um, transient, that much we can accept. But they are, they are false. They are appearances, like a magic show or a dream. That is too much. So, this is what many people have said to me. Huh? The next reason Gaudapada will show, you are right. Do you accept things are temporary? That they are uh, impermanent? They're impermanent? Yes. Yes. He says he will demonstrate through reasoning that impermanent directly in one step leads to falsity. Impermanent and falsity are basically the same. There's only a logical one step to be taken. That's what Gaurapada will show. If you accept impermanence, according to Gaurapada, you have already accepted the world is false. (laughs) That'll be interesting. We'll see next time. Thank you.